to my lifetime in this planet is a blink of an eye, a speck of yeah. sand. Pow, it's over. Yeah. That you would spend one moment of that blink of an eye bitching and moaning your, and your lot in life. If you spend one moment of that speck of sand, that blink of an eye, not pursuing your dream, not going after what it is you want. It's spitting in your master's face and saying, I don't appreciate this great gift of life. Every day is a celebration. Every day you open your eyes. What wonderful thing am I going to do today? Whose life might I change today? Who might change my life? If someone knocked on your door every day of your life and brought you a unique, original gift every day, you know, how much would you appreciate the gift? How much would you appreciate the giver of the gift? So in answer to your question, you know, yes, go for it. She should go for his, you should go for yours, we both should go for it. You know, that's what you're put here for. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special interview today. This is Vito Glazer's After Dark Podcast, live from West Hollywood, California. I'm in the house with the legendary Tom Driesen. Tom, how does it feel to be in Hollywood right now? <laughs> I, I've been here for 45 years now in this area, but I since when you say legendary, I always say whenever they give me that title I say you know how I became a legend all my critics are dead <laughs> I outlived well, them all <laughs> that I mean there's a lot of people in the media right now that kind of wish that would happen for them as well but uh, you're you're you've been out here 45 years but one thing we got in common that I just found out downstairs is we're both born and raised in Chicago so mm. we're Chicago refugees right we're out here um, what what uh, before I, I go into the whole Chicago thing I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, little advice that I just recently started sharing with people. And I had a kind of aggressive acquaintance come to me and they were trying to give me a lot of financial advice, right? And they're like, all you guys in Hollywood, you guys are all weirdos, you know, you're getting too much sunshine. And he was trying to tell me, you know, I need to do like more investing and, and I should like stop doing as much entertainment and get more into business and stuff like that. And I politely had to tell him, uh, I don't take advice from people that live in the cold. So <laughs> uh, what, what's your experience been like that? I mean, do you ever miss Chicago? Do you miss the seasons? Do you miss the family? You know, you know, I, I, I truly, I miss Chicago yeah. all the time. I, I don't miss 40 below zero, you know. <laughs> and when, when I answer, and, I, and I'm a golfer, you know, yep. that's, that's my, one of my passions is golf. And so that uh, a friend of mine was 57 years old. He lived in Chicago. And he said, Tom, he said, um, I... I live in Chicago. If I live the national average 75, he said, I hope I live a lot longer. But if I live the national average, that means I got 18 years uh, left. Uh, and he said, of, of golf. He said, if I stay in Chicago, I've only got nine. It cuts <laughs> yep. it in half. Yeah, it does. So out here, so we're going to play golf in January and in, in, in February and all, all season long. But yeah. I miss, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a Cub fan. I'm, I'm a Bear fan. I'm a Bulls fan. Yeah. Um, I, I, the people of Chicago, they, they, I got started there in show business, and they supported me. And they're very supportive even to this day when I go mm -hmm. back home. I mean, I, I just... So that that I miss. I miss the, I miss the neighborhood thing. Yeah. We don't have neighborhoods out here in Los Angeles. You know, when you grew up in Chicago, you knew everybody in your neighborhood, and everybody knew you, and you knew the families and everything. Out here, you don't know your next-door neighbor after 25 years. You've got you gates. Know. People pay extra to not know the neighbors. I know I actually <laughs> moved. I spent a lot of money to not have to talk to my neighbors. So there you that's go. just kind of how it is out here. Yeah. But uh, there. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Chicago. You're from the south side? Yeah, I'm from a suburb called Harvey, Illinois. Yep. Harvey, when I was growing up, it was steel mills and factories. Um, it was a, a microcosm of, of Chicago. It, mm -hmm. it, you know, working class, blue collar people. Uh, we had, um, you know, maybe 18 um, different type factories. They made everything from mm -hmm. clutch plates to crankshafts and mm -hmm. taverns. 
we had 36 taverns and all, you know, and, and my, yeah. my father frequented every single one of them at one time or another. I was, a, I, I, we had a very poor family. <clears throat> there were eight of us in a family, mm-hmm. 10 counting my mom and dad. There were four boys and four girls. We lived in a shack. Um, I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. I sold newspapers on the corner, all to help feed my brothers and sisters, and none of this do I regret. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's how I was raised. At age 16, I had to drop out of high school because I had holes in my shoes. I wore raggedy clothes to school. Uh, and, you know, when you're in high school, everybody dresses to the nines, and you, you stand out if you aren't, you know, dressed like them or look like them. Mm-hmm. So I was 16. I dropped out of high school. I worked in a bowling alley. I stopped running with some, a pretty tough crowd. And... Uh, getting in street fights and things like that. Nothing I'm proud of, but then at 17, I went in the Navy, and, and it changed my whole life. Mm-hmm. I got a high school diploma from the Navy. Um, for the first time in my life, what changed my life was in boot camp, they shave your head, everybody's got a shaved head, and everybody wore the same clothes. F- so if you look around, all of a sudden I was equal. I was equal to everybody, and from this point on, it was up to me mm-hmm. you know, to achieve things. But that, that was a, a major thing. The other thing was... I lived in a shack that had no bathtub, no shower, and no hot water. So I could stand in, under a shower and let as much hot water flow on me as much as I wanted. To this day, when I'm in a shower and hot water's on me, there's a sense of well-being comes over me. This mm. is the truth. I only had one pair of shoes. Now I got 25 in my walk-in closet. <laughs> so it does, little things you know, make me feel good. But it, it, it yeah. changed my life, the service did. Yeah, that's great. So <clears throat> you're a veteran, and you were in the Navy? I was in the Navy four years. I served on two aircraft carriers, the USS Tarawa and the USS Essex. Mm-hmm. But I also served with the Marine Corps unit for nine months called right. NEGDF, Naval Emergency Ground Defense Force. You know. Did you see any combat? No. We trained for combat morning, noon, and night. I mean, that's, that's what you do constantly. Uh, but I was in from 1956 to 1960, so I missed that. You know, it was prior to. Now, two years after I came out of the service, I, I was married and, and I had a couple kids, and I, I was going to go back in. All my buddies were in Nam, you know, in Vietnam. A lot of guys I served with and everything. And I, I, my wife and I were on, on the outs at that time, and I wanted to go back in. And, and I asked the Marine Corps recruiter, I said, if I go in because I trained with the Marine Corps, even though I'm, I, I went to Navy boot camp, I said, do I have to go through boot camp at Pendleton? And he said, let me check for you. He came back, mm-hmm. and he did check my record. He said, yeah, you got to go through Pendleton. He said, Tom, you don't want to go. You know, you, you try to get back with your wife and family. You know, and Probably good did, advice. Yeah, yeah. And here's something interesting. Actually, this wasn't really uh, originally in my list of questions, but it kind of brings back that kind of patriotism. And it's not something you see now. Now you really don't see people getting feeling obligated to serve their country, right? Like we used to before, it was kind of a, a badge of honor. It was kind of something you were called to. Why, why do you feel that's kind of changed throughout, you know, the past 30, 40 years, or even, I don't know, now you're saying maybe almost 50 years. Why were people so, uh, especially men, so excited to join the service and get involved with stuff and, and even think about going back and, and supporting their country in conflict? And now people just don't even really seem to care that much. It comes from the school systems especially, but you've got to remember, now, when I was a young guy, it, World War II wasn't that far away, so everybody was patriotic in those days. I mean, in Harvey, Illinois, there was a pizza place that I hung out at. If you went in there, when I came out of the service, if there were 20 guys in there, 19 of them served. Mm-hmm. Only a couple were drafted. Most of them were all volunteers. Right. You know, if you weren't going to college, then going into the military was a good thing. And, and every family where I grew up it had members that had served in the armed forces and several who had 
died in the armed forces, you know. So there was a, a, a real strong sense of patriotism. I shine shoes in all these bars in my neighborhood. These were all World War II and Korean veterans, you know, and, and they were just proud to serve. Fourth of July parades in Harvey at that time, the flags were flown, and there was a, a, a real sense of America and, and, and how much you love this country and for what reasons. You know, you can argue with You want to argue with me about wars? I understand that. I, I spent four years in the service, but you can argue with me about Vietnam if you want to. I'll let you argue with me about a lot of things, about a lot of wars. I won't let you argue with me about World War II. If we lost that war, we'd be speaking, you and I'd be speaking a different language right now. Right. There was no doubt what Hitler had in mind for this country. There was no doubt what Tojo had in mind for this country. We would be in concentration camps. Those men and women of that era, it, Tom, Tom Brokaw was right, that was truly the greatest generation because they... We, we were attacked from two nations. Pearl Harbor was destroyed. Most of our aircraft, and I mean, our ships were destroyed. And these men and women ponied up. The women back home here in the, the Rosie, the Riveters and all that, working three shifts, everybody, that saved this nation. So I won't let you argue with me about that. And that's the, and, and I'll end with this. T- today, if you, young kids today, if they're, the person they wanted to become president wasn't elected, then they had to go to safe spaces. They were so traumatized, <laughs> yeah. they had to go to safe spaces. And I say to all of them, do you know where your grandparents were, your grandfather was, when he was your age, when he was 17 and 18? He was on places called Iwo Jima, Guadalcanal, Battle of the Bulge, Midway, Normandy, places you've never heard of, Macon Island, because the reason you had never heard of them is your professors have never taught you about them or taught you about American history. But they were watching their buddies getting their arms and legs blown off, heads blown off. They were holding their buddies' bodies in their arms when they were dying, when they were your age. And not one of them, not one of them ever asked for a safe space. Because you don't know it. You live in a safe space. It's called the United States of America and because of those men and women. Yeah, and I salute the vets, and I totally respect all your insight and, and your opinion on that. One thing you kind of uh, just turned me on to right now that I'm thinking about is I was having a conversation with a political consultant. He's in Washington, and I said, you know, the wars were fought differently back then, right? It was a lot of physical war. Now the wars seem to be being fought. It's more of psychological warfare, economic warfare, almost social media warfare, right? It's the power is being taken and controlled through – a longer, I call it, you know, these international enemies of America are playing the long game. So how do you, have you seen that as well? You know, being in the entertainment industry, I actually think that Hollywood is one of the targets of the international warfare. I think it's been infiltrated by a lot of uh, money from countries that don't necessarily have America's best interests in mind. And they are actually using and weaponizing Hollywood content production and social media platforms in order to weaken America and take it over without ever having to fire a single bullet. Amen. Have you seen any insight on that with 45 uh, years in the entertainment business? For 52 years, really. I've been a comedian for 52 years, but I've been on Hollywood yeah. since 1975, you know, 74, 75. But Plato said, give me your storytellers and I'll rule your country. Give me your storytellers. Yes. Politics is downstream of pop culture. You know. mm-hmm. um, give me your storytellers, I'll rule your country. And who will, you know, Hollywood is the storyteller. They tell the story. So certainly you want to infiltrate that. You know, the, the wise thing, I mean, that the, the, the enemies of, our, of this nation have done, first thing you must do, you know, you've got to remember the America I grew up in. You went to school in the morning, and you said a morning prayer. You said the Lord's Prayer. I went to Catholic school, right? And then you said the Pledge of Allegiance. There was a flag in every classroom. 
you know, in, in every classroom in America. So first thing I do, we got to stop this nation from believing in a God. They must believe in a government, but not in a God, you know, for God's sake, not in a God. 90% of Americans believed in God after World War II. Today, about 52% or something like that. So they succeeded. And whatever you do, don't let them pledge allegiance to the flag. You pledge allegiance to the government. That's what you do, not to that flag. You know, let's, well, let's disrespect that flag as much as you want. In fact, let's burn it. Let's burn the flag and, and, and say, we've got a right to do that. We've got a right to do that. We can, we can burn the American flag. And, and they did it. And they're very successful. Our enemies are very, very successful without pulling a trigger anywhere. You know? And, and, and every generation has to renew that patriotic thing. Every, every, every generation. And, and it hasn't been renewed in maybe five generations, you know. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Well, if I was uh, the current mainstream media, I would just take that clip of you saying, let's burn the flag, and I would just post that everywhere and leave the rest of this interview on the editing room floor. That's but. exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. Yeah. They control the narrative. Yeah. You know? By the way, people are listening to this and saying, this guy's a comedian? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say this. We got a little intense off the bat, but it's okay. I mean, it's you know, I'm all about just perpetuating the conversation, whatever you have in your mind. I, I agree. I agree. You actually... Uh, one thing I did want to ask you about, you, you know, we were talking about kind of the, uh, the owning the storytellers, right? And I recently uh, got to meet Deepak Chopra. Uh, are you familiar with Deepak Chopra? He's like a huge thought leader. He was on Oprah. Uh, very cool guy, spiritual. He wrote a book uh, on Buddha. He wrote a book about Jesus. Uh, very brilliant man. Yeah, I know about him, I, I, but I don't know him, but I know about him. So I got to ask him, <clears throat> kind of in a setting like this, I got to ask him a question. And you know, I was really looking forward to it because I'm really into, you know, spirituality and higher higher thought process and stuff like that. And I decided I was going to try to stump him with a really good question. And now I own a PR company, so I was also hoping that whatever he answered was going to be something I could use in my advertising, right, to promote myself a little bit. Huh. So he ended up giving me the best possible answer. But I asked him, I said, Dr. Chopra, what do you think is the meaning of life? And he gave me this amazing answer right off the top of his head. He already had it ready. It's as if I had sent him the questions the day before. He said, the meaning of life is to share your story and to tell your story. I agree. And we had a discussion off camera after, and we were talking about and just breaking it down. And he's like, think about you have an amoeba that's like a one-celled organism, right? What is that amoeba's purpose in life, right? Just to copy its DNA and make another one-celled organism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, all the animals in the wild, what is their inf- what is their their purpose? Is to pass on their species, right? And and to pass on the information that they know that's genetically programmed into them. Mm-hmm. And humans do the same thing, right? But I feel that that's why the actors, the writers, the creators of our of humanity have always been held in the highest regard, right? In the movie The Social Network, there's a great quote where I love where the lawyers are talking to Harvard and they, uh, they're explaining it and the Harvard professor says to them, uh, we, we've had uh, 10 presidents and three movie stars come out of Harvard. And the lawyer says, uh, who are the movie stars? You know, <laughs> uh, so we we hold storytellers at a very high regard. Right. And yeah. I just was wondering, you know, in your life as as being a storyteller, essentially. Right. You've, you've made an entire career out of first being an orator and a, and a comedian and then making a kind of a second career out of just talking about your days as a comedian. Right. And, and I love your material. How do you feel about how important it is for people to share their story. Well, it's, it's the only reason you're put on this planet. Nothing, any information you have, Vita, was not yours. Somebody gave it to you. You learned it through hard hardships, but most of it was passed on. And so it's your responsibility to pass that on. 
You know, um, um, th- there was a book many years ago called The Magnificent Obsession, you know, and uh, it doesn't have too much to talk about uh, what we're talking about, but it was written by Lloyd C. Douglas. Its uh, predecessor was um, a book called Dr. Hudson's Secret Journal, and in it was The Secret of Success. If you want to become successful, you have to believe biblically when you say, I ask and you shall receive. When you ask your master, you say, I want to be, I want to own my own PR firm one day, mm-hmm. or I want, to, I want to be a stand-up comedian. When you ask, and you, you and you have to and you have to absolutely believe once you ask you will receive mm-hmm. well in the book it says once you ask and you know you're going to receive now then you must keep your eyes and ears open for his less fortunate people mm-hmm. and you must help them and if you can help them privately and quietly even more so within 30 days your master will reward you toward your endeavor so you know uh, any anybody you can if you have to, if you help them you have to swear them to secrecy and say, "I'll help you, Vito, but you, you promise me you'll pay it forward. Mm-hmm. You, that you don't don't pay me back. Pay it forward." Why I give the motivation talks that I do is what you're talking about. I'm a stand-up comedian, first, last, and always. That's my my preference and my, my what I, what I love to do. Well, yeah, this interview's been hilarious so far. <clears> so yeah, I so can far. see why. <laughs> but I I I. I slept in an abandoned car. We're out in front of Sunset Boulevard mm-hmm. right now. I used to hitchhike up and down this strip. Hitchhike, begging to work for free at the comedy store. At that time, my wife and kids were in Chicago. I was struggling. you know. So I, I ended up sleeping in a car. It wasn't my car. It was up on blocks. It was an old Nash Rambler. The front seat came down. So I, I hitchhike up and down Sunset Boulevard, begging to work for free at the comedy store. Uh, and, and I succeeded. I succeeded in everything that I set out to do through doing these principles. Uh, that I talk about in my motivation talks. Perception, all of life is about perception. Visualization, whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve. Um, self-talk, the most important person you'll ever talk to is yourself. And develop a sense of humor. A sense of humor is when you have the ability to laugh, not at other shortcomings and misfortunes, you have the ability to laugh at your own. I learned these lessons, I read these books, and I practice these things, and all my dreams have come true. Now, it's my responsibility to share that with others who may be going through the same thing. And that's, you know, that's what you have to do. Deepak Chopra, by the way, is just a brilliant guy. I read a couple of his books. I, I didn't quite understand what you said. I said, oh, yeah, I heard that name, but now I remember very well. But that's exactly w- what you do. You know, you're put here to, you're going to change lives everywhere you meet. Just us, you being here, we change Clara's life, you know, just because she had to be here. So mm-hmm. everything that you do in life is changing something else's life. You know, it's all about to me um, passing on, mm-hmm. passing on the, any information that can make somebody else's load lighter. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that was a long answer to a short. Question. No, I love mm-hmm. it. And I actually, so you touched on something. You said you were hitchhiking out here. You were married. You just got out of the service. You had some kids. The family's back in Chicago. You're here trying to make it in show business. Uh, I just got married about a year and a half ago, and I'm also married to a comedian. I'm married to Tori Herman. She's the, uh, she does the Russian versus America comedy videos on mm-hmm. Instagram, and it's it's not war based. It's they she she basically does humorous comparisons of Western culture versus Eastern European culture, mm-hmm. and she's generated a gigantic following from it. So. We we have this conversation all the time. So we both work in the entertainment business, right? I'm more kind of in media and production and, and public relations, and she's more kind of, you know, front and center and getting a lot of attention. But we always talk about how blessed we are that our basically our careers and our goals are aligned, right? Because we're constantly amplifying each other. But 
I have a lot of friends who the entertainment business has ruined their relationships or who find it difficult to maintain a relationship with somebody outside of the entertainment business because of all the sacrifices and all the instability and stuff that comes from being a creator. We, we use the term creator now, so it doesn't matter if you're on social media, if you're creating a course, or if you're creating your stand-up or a film. So. If you're an entertainer or a creator, do you think it's fair to your partner to be in the entertainment business? Let me let me think if I can word this question better. Uh, should should do you think it's appropriate for people who are married to pursue their dreams in entertainment? Yeah, because you're here for a blink of an eye, you know. Uh, but but also Pythagoras said, even though he's a great mathematician, he said life is like the. I'm paraphrasing, but he said life is like the Olympic Games. There are those people who choose to get in the arena and go for the gold. There are others who choose to sit in the arena and watch those go for the gold. And then there are those who choose to sell trinkets that are watching those go for the gold. And you're one of those three. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be in that arena, and I wanted to, I wanted to go for the gold. My ex-wife, she didn't want to be in the arena. She's just very happy sitting in the arena, and she didn't want to sell any of them damn trinkets either. You know? <laughs> but that didn't make her wrong. That was just who she was. And it didn't make me wrong. It's who I was. It was a very bad match because she didn't marry a comedian. Mm-hmm. I came out of the service, you know. I, I met her when I was home on leave, but then when I came out of the service, she got married. Uh, she, she married a working guy. Her dad worked in a factory for 38 years, never missed a day, never missed a day, and went to work every day, went to work sick. He brought a check home every Friday, a mm-hmm. check home every Friday. And I go into this business where there's hardly any money in it. Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team, as you know. Mm-hmm. And... And there was no, he had a wife and two kids. I had a wife and three kids. There was no money in it. So she was adamantly opposed to the business, you know, and, and, and rightfully so. But, you know, you can, it doesn't matter that you're both in the same profession or one understands the other. It's if you love somebody so much that you really, that you want to spend the rest of your life with that person, you want that person to be happy, both of you. And the reason why I say you got to pursue your dream I talked about this at the, and, and I'm sure you're hearing it for the second time. But I was on an airplane one time f- flying, and I picked up everything. I read everything with the air sickness bag, you know. And I read this thing about uh, anthropology, mm-hmm. and I'm not Dr. Carl Sagan wrote the article, and I'm not interested in, in anthropology. But uh, it was talking about dinosaurs ruled the planet for 250 million years, and man in this present form, Cro-Magnon, Neanderthal, and now maybe 100,000. I don't know somewhere. But, and that this earth has been here five billion years, according to science, and it's going to be here another five billion before the sun destroys the earth, that the earth is actually, earth is actually moving closer to the sun, and one day it will look not unlike Mars looks like right now. Mm-hmm. You know, but I set that magazine down and I said, this planet was here five billion years before I was born. Not thousands, not million, five billion. And it's going to be here five billion after I die. That means my lifetime in this planet is a, a blink of an eye. A speck of yep. sand, pow! It's over. Yep. That you would spend one moment of that blink of an eye, bitching and moaning your, and your lot in life. If you spend one moment of that speck of sand, that blink of an eye, not pursuing your dream, not going after what it is you want, it's spitting in your master's face and saying, "I don't appreciate this great gift of life." Every day is a celebration. Every day you open your eyes. What wonderful thing am I going to do today? Whose life might I change today? Who might change my life? If someone knocked on your door every day of your life and brought you a unique, original gift every day. You know, how much would you appreciate the gift? How much would you appreciate the giver of the gift? So in answer to your question, you know, yes, go for it. 
she should go for his, you should go for yours, we both should go for it. You know, that's what you're put here for, to do all you can, to follow your dream. And, 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 if, and, and if you don't have a dream, then help somebody else reach theirs. So I got to ask you, uh, you were divorced, or you, you mentioned that you refer to her as your ex-wife. So you got married. She married a factory worker, right? You had three kids with your first wife. Mm-hmm. My only wife. Your only wife. So you never got remarried after no. that. Did Why did the marriage end? Was it because of your role in the entertainment business? No. Well, it, 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 no. It just we went our separate ways. Yeah. You know, after, after she, she separated from me three times while I was pursuing this show business career. One time before and then, then two times after. Now, and we finally, I finally got her together. I finally brought the kids out here to the West Coast mm-hmm. and, and I start doing well. And then now I'm doing the Tonight Shows and I'm, you know, I'm, 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 make, I'm touring with Sammy Davis. I'm touring with all these different artists, Smokey Robinson. I'm, I'm making money. We bought a home. And yeah. We had two cars and, and, and life was really good. But as time went by and the kids were getting older, we realized we just weren't, we weren't compatible anymore, you know. Uh, so obviously entertainment business did have some effect on your personal life. How would you do it differently now? Or would you continue to repeat the same thing in order to be where you are today? I do exactly what I did. <clears throat> when I, before I toured with Sammy Davis Jr., I heard him sing a song one time. My wife and I were separated. I was staying in my brother's apartment. He had an attic. That's how I stayed up in the attic. I was so down. I mean, everything was going against me, but I heard Sammy Davis Jr. singing this song, and ironically, years later, I toured with him, but he sang a song called I Gotta Be Me from a Broadway play, and the lyrics of that song just really resonated with me. Whether I'm right, whether I'm wrong, whether I find a place in this world or never belong, I gotta be me. I'll go it alone if that's how it must be. I can't be right for somebody else if I'm not right for me. And those lyrics just resonated with me. I could never be the best father, the best husband, the best friend, brother, neighbor, if I was never right for me, if I never pursued that dream of mine. I'd be sitting in a bar somewhere right now. I probably would have been dead a long time ago, but <clears throat> I'd be sitting in a bar telling people, you know, I could have I could have been a comedian. No, if you could have been, you would have been. Don't sit here and tell us what you could have been. Yep. And I saw myself in that place that one day I'd be saying, I might have been, I could have been. I said, no, I'm going to go for it. And, and, and I don't regret that one bit. And my children... You know, they didn't care whether I was a coal man or a comedian. They didn't care. They, they just, they, you know, and I uprooted them out of their schools in Illinois to come out here and chase my dream. They left their friends and their cousins and their family and, and, and schoolmates to follow their dad. And they never stopped saying, I love you, Daddy. I got the greatest kids in the world. You know? Well, you're very blessed. So that kind of leads me to my next question here. I know a lot of people in the comedy business and comedy, just like pretty much anything else in entertainment or honestly, even in business, a very small percentage of the people have the majority of the success, right? So I see people, you know, I know people just like you, maybe they're not hitchhiking and sleeping in a car, but they're, you know, they're working a, an Uber job or doing something that they, that they don't want to do so they can get up there and get their 10 minutes at the comedy store or the Laugh Factory. So 52 years as a comedian, 45 minutes or 45 years in Hollywood, how do you define success? It's, Christopher Morley had, had the greatest signs. Uh, success is living the life you want, <clears throat> you know. If you, if you wanted to be a wino, 
and and just be a wino and 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 just not and let the rest of the world go by. You only you met see? my wife for two minutes. How do you already know what success is to her? <laughs> I mean, yeah. six, yes, that it's doing what success is with you know living the life you want. There was people say to me a lot of times as a comedian they'll say, "How come you never got a sitcom?" Because I turned them down almost all the time. Really, I was touring with Frank Sinatra yep. as his opening act for almost fourteen years in forty-five, fifty cities a year, flying in his private jet all over the world. Now, when I was a little boy, shining shoes in a bar, in all the neighborhoods, Frank Sinatra was on the jukebox. When I came out of the service and I was tending bar, I was all my buddies. We closed the bar and we'd lock it up, and I'd be stocking. And Frank would be singing, "Come fly with me, let's fly away." And my buddies say, "Man, what do you think that'd be like flying with Frank Sinatra?" And here I was flying with Frank Sinatra all over the world. At the same time, as a kid growing up, I was an athlete. I played football. I played basketball. I'm a little guy, but I played basketball on an all-black basketball team. I played football, all-black football team, and I do a lot of routines about that. In fact, they got an album out in front of an all-black audience called That White Boy is Crazy. I'm, I'm the only white comedian ever do an album in front of an all-black audience. And you heard me say that when people say, how could you do that? I always had the same line, what color is laughter? It's what's good. The, what's the color of laughter? But at that same time now, I'm also touring on a tour, a golf tour. It was basketball, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, and show business people that were 10 handicap or below. So it was Johnny Bench, Mike Schmidt, Mario Lemieux, uh, uh, John Elway, Dan Marino, Michael Jordan. We had 42 Hall of Famers. Show wow. business, it was uh, Jack Wagner, me, Eddie Marinero, Frankie Avalon, Smokey Robinson, different, uh, uh, you know, d- different people. Now, my, my point of that is, here I was flying in Frank's jet all, over, all around the world, and I was inside of an arena. If you'd have told me when I was a little boy, you hear the guy in the jukebox, one day you're going to go fly with him. If you'd have told me when I was a little boy that one day you're going to get inside of an arena and you're going to compete with the greatest athletes who ever lived in your lifetime, I'd say that's impossible. That can't possibly happen, nor could me flying in Frank Sinatra's jet. And I was doing both of those. And people say, you want to come and do a sitcom? That would mean you're going to be with a crew of, uh, you know, of maybe six or seven or eight actors bitching and moaning, complaining, he got two laughs more than me and all that stuff. I was living the life I wanted. You know, and I don't regret it at all. A wise philosopher once said, in the end, all you have are memories. He said, in the end, all you have are memories. Make some good ones. Absolutely. Vito, I got some good ones. <laughs> and I'd love to hear it. So your claim to fame, I would say, is that you were, I, I, I use the term Frank Sinatra's right-hand man. You say <clears throat> that's not appropriate. But no. what, what was your context into working with Frank Sinatra and how you built your career with him? It, you know, it, it, it was purely by accident and by being glib at the right time. I was touring with, I had toured with Smokey Robinson, Mac Davis, Tony Orlando and Don, uh, Frankie Avalon, James Darren, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Natalie Cole. I was touring with all these different type singers because I could work clean and they needed a comedian that could work clean yep. in front of their audiences. It's hard. It's hard to, be, yeah, to sure. do the clean sets. Uh, but in those days, I'll get back to how I met Frank Sinatra, yeah. but in those days, television was this big, ABC, NBC, CBS. Yeah. So Anywhere you went in America in those days, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? If you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one. You might going to be one, but you weren't one now. Freddie Prince made one appearance on The Tonight Show, and the next day got a sitcom. The word was out. That's the show to get on. So as a businessman, you watch the show. Excuse me, we're in show business. That's two words, show and business. I'm watching The Tonight Show. How do you get on there? Those comedians had to write material that could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. Yep. There was no cable television in those days. 
you know, uh, so so that's how you had to get them. So now I, I ended up doing 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. So 61 you, appearances. Yeah. You had to keep coming up with a new five minutes every yeah. time you did the show, right? So I had developed a wealth of clean material. Now, now I'm on the road with Smokey Robinson. I'm at Caesars Palace in, in Lake Tahoe, Caesars. And Frank Sinatra is appearing at Harris. And I had worked Harris many times with Sammy Davis. So I called the maitre d'. Now, and I'll show you how fate is. I could have went over there any night. That we, I was with Smokey. We were there for like a week. I don't know what made me go that particular night, but I came off stage. I called the maitre d' and I, uh, Harris and said, I want to catch Frank's show. He said, don't worry, Tommy. We'll take care of you. I s- had seen Frank Sinatra perform a couple times. He created more excitement walking to the microphone than most people did with their whole act. When Frank walked out to that microphone, the room was electrified. People would stand and cheer. This was th- th- their hero. You know, They loved Frank Sinatra's music. Now, so I, I, I didn't want to miss that opening. I leave the stage at Caesars, and, and if you know Lake Tahoe, it's one casino away to Harris. And so I, I didn't change out of my stage clothes, and I rush like a madman. I go running into the main showroom, and there's the vice president of Harris Hotel standing out in front, a man named Holmes Hendrickson. He's with a, a, a guy, heavyset guy with a cigar, you know. And, and I'm running in the showroom, and he sees me. He says, Tommy, come here, come here. I, I reluctantly went over because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening. He said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognize the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer, very powerful guy in Hollywood. So he said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen, and I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer rolled his eyes, and you know, like he'd heard this a million times, and he winked at the vice president, but I caught the wink. And he looked at me. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank... Would you want more than fifty thousand? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like this kid. He laughed. Yeah. A week later, they gave me a week with Frank at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City. They called me to do it, and I, 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 the second night I was with him, I can remember like it was yesterday. He, he and his wife Barbara took me out to dinner, and I was sitting across from him. He set his knife and his fork down. And he said to me, "I like your material, and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me, if you're interested." And I didn't say, "Let me check my calendar." <laughs> I yes. said, yeah. I said, oh, yeah, this is, you know. So, and it turned into 45, 50 cities a year. And experience, I, had, I, I, I was an experienced comedian at that time, <clears throat> excuse me, opening for a lot of stars, <clears throat> excuse me. But I never opened for 20,000 seats for the great Frank Sinatra. I was going into arenas where 20,000 seats, in Hawaii, 40,000 outdoors. Wow. You know, this is a whole different dynamic for a stand-up comedian. If I did 20 minutes tonight at the comedy store, 30 minutes at the comedy store or the Laugh Factory, that, and that same material that I did there, if I took that same exact material to open for Frank in front of 20,000 people, that same material takes on a totally different dynamic. There's a difference in timing, you know, um, and, and, and so it was a real new experience for me. I had to, do, I had to learn a lot of new tricks, you know. How old were you when, <clears throat> when Frank recruited you at the dinner? I was in my, let's see, I was in my late 30s. Late 30s? Yeah, Frank was, I had already been yeah. doing a lot of stuff. What's the age difference between you and Frank Sinatra? Oh, he was, geez, he was 28, 30 years maybe older than me. Somewhere around that, probably 28 years older than me or something, 30 years older than me. Really? Okay, yeah. so he I, was, he was, was kind of a mentor then. <clears throat> oh, without a doubt. Yeah. He, you know, when, we, when I first went on tour with him, he was the boss. Frank yeah. Sinatra was the boss of his tour. Yeah. He was the boss. And, and, and I treated him that way. Later, as time went by, he liked to hang out till dawn. He never went to bed till the sun came up. He was nocturnal, you know. Whether we were on the road or off the road, when I stayed at his home in, in Rancho Mirage, 
um, that he would stay up till dawn, and we'd ride around the desert till dawn. But uh, he, uh, I forgot what point I was going to here. Yeah, that, well, anyways, he was a good mentor for you. Oh, I, I'm sorry. He, yeah, he, yeah. he was the boss. Yeah. And then, then, you know, as time went by, he became like a buddy. We we're hanging out. Toward the end of his life, he was more like a father to me. He would give me fatherly advice, you know. That's really uh, so nice. Yeah, a lot of things that I'll take to my grave. You know. I would love to hear this because I know you got a million Frank Sinatra stories <clears> and you've even written like some books and stuff about them. But what is your favorite Frank Sinatra story to tell? There's a hundred. <clears throat> That's why I wrote, I wrote a book called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. And, and it's, it's, it's got, I'm, this is, I'm, I'm plugging, cheap plug. But plug it, yeah. It's got 455 star reviews. I'm real proud of the book. Because I kept stories, whenever, uh, from the day I first went in the show business, when Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team, whenever something poignant or something funny happened, I'd go back to my, my room and I'd journal. I'd write it down. I'd turn that all into a real good book that, that people are enjoying. You know, and, and, and it's triumphant. And I want them to enjoy it because I want them, too, to overcome obstacles like I had to overcome it. So I could tell you a, a hundred francs and other stories. Probably one of the insightful things about them we were coming out of the Waldorf Astoria one night in New York on our way to do a show. <clears throat> and um, we, he went out the back way because if he went out the front, he'd have got mobbed. So we went out the back way and they had a limo back there rushing us to the gig. As we were going out the door, the security was taking us to the limo. A woman jumped out of the doorway and the doorman told me later on she'd been hiding there for like five hours. And she started screaming, Mr. Sinatra, please, please, Mr. Sinatra, please. And they were rushing us to the limo. And... When, when Frank started getting limo, she kept, the security was holding her back. And she kept hollering, please, Mr. Sinatra, please. He came back out, and he walked up to her. He told security, leave her alone. He said, what is it, ma'am? What is it? She said, my husband is homesick. He's terribly, terribly ill. And if I could get an autograph from you, it would mean the world to him. Frank said, sure. And he's signing the autograph, and she said, oh, what beautiful cufflinks. He had very, very expensive, well over 1000 I know where these cufflinks came from, well over $1,000. She said, with beautiful cufflinks. She said, thank you. He finished the autograph, and he took the cufflinks off, and he handed them to her. She said, give these to your husband. She said, no, 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 I don't want them. I just was admiring them. He said, no, I want your husband to have them. Now, we get in the limo, Vito, and I said to him, Frank, that was beautiful, but why did you do that? He said, Tommy, if you possess something that you can't give away, then you don't possess it. It possesses you. I said, wow, that was really pretty heavy. And, and then he said, Aristotle Onassis, he said, Not, Tommy, nothing we have is ours. He said, that shirt you have on your back, if you die tomorrow, somebody else will be wearing that shirt, you know. So it's not even your shirt. He said, Aristotle Onassis had mansions, private jets, yachts, and, in, and billions of dollars. And the second he died, it transferred. None of that was his. He was only using it. Nothing we have is ours. That profoundly changed my life. That profoundly changed my life. I, I'm a, and it, I could give you 20 different ways, but a simple thing. One time I'm... Like a week later, I had all my goombas, all the Italian guys over my, mm -hmm. my house watching Monday Night Football. The Bears were playing the Vikings, right? And Eddie Marinero's a buddy of mine. He played for the Vikings. So I got all these, I'm going to name drop now, but I had Dennis Farina, Joe Montaigne, Joe Pesci, um, uh, uh, Eddie Marinero, Frankie Avalon. Frankie was making Philadelphia steak sandwiches. <laughs> I had all the, all the goombas over the house, you know. And <clears throat> so I thought, oh, gee, I don't have any beer and uh, in, in the pop for the guys. So I rushed over to the liquor store, and I had just played in the Lake Tahoe golf tournament. I had an NBC golf shirt with an NBC hat that matched the golf shirt. 
And I rushed in there, and, and because I had played golf the day, I rushed in, and the guy behind the counter, I'm bringing all this stuff to the counter, he was a foreign guy. He said, oh, I like your hat, boss, nice hat. Could I have your hat? And I said, no, it matches my, you know, my shirt. Anyhow, I paid for this stuff. I rushed out to the counter, and I thought, what the hell did I just do? I walked back in. He had three or four people in line now. because I took the cap, and I set it way at the end of the counter. And I said, he said, hey, boss, boss, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. I said, no, no, I want you to have it. The thought that a hat possessed me, that I had not grown yeah. as a human being, that a hat owned me. <laughs> and from that point on, I never forgot that. There's a lot of other stories. That, that's say. brilliant, actually. And you know what? Sometimes <clears throat> you just have to have those really specific things happen to you in order to be tested to see if you've actually learned anything, right? Otherwise, I Absolutely. feel like... We just keep reliving the same mistakes over and over again. Um, I love the Frank Sinatra story. And since we're talking about having a couple pops, I think we were on Man Cow and you told this great story about Frank because he loved Jack Daniels, right? That was like his thing. And is there a story where Jack Daniels, somebody else sponsored him and he thought it was Jack oh, Daniels? Yeah, you get, that's great. You remember that. I, I remember that. But tell me the details. That's, that's my favorite Frank Sinatra story. My dad and I, my dad loves Jack Daniels. All he does is drink it. Yeah. Only Jack. I love Jack Daniels too. And then... Uh, you told that story, and it was like six in the morning because we were doing morning radio out there. Yeah. And I would just love to hear that story in person right now. It would make my day. A, a, a Scotch company came to Frank's manager <clears throat> and said, "We want to sponsor his tour for the whole summer." And uh, and it, you know, and anyhow, long story short, several million dollar offer and all this other thing, and they finally agreed to it. And you know, anyhow, Frank was getting up in years at the time, but for. 50 years or more, after when he had two songs to go, he would, you know, to have a little jack in the, in, in, the, in the splash, you know, and he would say to the audience, he'd toast the audience, and he always would say, you know, uh, may you all live to be 150 years old, and the last song, and the last voice you hear is mine, you know, something like that. <clears throat> so now, the, that night, all the opening kickoff of this tour, all these Scotch people are in the audience, all their clients and their representatives, and they're all there. Probably a couple hundred people there from in, in a you know fifteen thousand seat arena, and so the the manager is telling him, you know, <clears throat> don't forget, you know, that tonight when you drink your toast, it's going to be at Scotch. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyhow, but for fifty years he's been sipping Jack Daniels. <laughs> so he gets to that part of the show. He said, "Wonderful audience, ladies and gentlemen." But it's ah, you know, he used to say about Jack Daniels. Nectar from the gods, you know. <laughs> but he, he got to scotch. He said to everybody out there, salute, you know, may you all live to be 150 years old. The last voice here is mine. Salute. And he goes like this. He goes, <laughs> He said, what is this shit? <laughs> the, the manager's face, white as it went, oh, white as God. this piece of paper, white as it goes. All the clients in the audience, yeah, you're, that, that was the end of that. <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's tough. I know how it is, too, because I work on a lot of brand deals, and I think that's why that story comes up a lot. And I just wanted to make sure I had it right. So I want to be on the record with you with that story. Because I I mean, I heard it once, and I've yeah. retold it a lot of times because it just comes up a lot, you know. And I'll do, I like I said, I like Jack Daniels, too. And I'll go to a party or an event, and I'll order the Jack, and I'll, I'll drink it. And I, I had the same thing happen. I just spit it on. I'm like, I don't know what you gave me, but it's not Jack Daniels. So yeah. I think there's just something about, I guess you call them the Goombas, but I guess it's something about the guys who like our, our drinks yeah. a certain way. Um, yeah. You just, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to, you think you want to get paid and you think you want to, you can veer off, but you just got to keep it real, right? And, and Frank was, that Frank yeah. was a creature of habit. Yep. 
<clears throat> excuse me, and, and he was very loyal to, you know, but for, he wasn't thinking, I think, you know, when yeah. that happened. Yeah. Now you get caught up in the moment <clears throat> and stuff. So that makes me think about Frank Sinatra a lot, right? Because he, he's such a classic, right? He he had the movie, he was kind of the, the triple hitter, right? He was the movie star, he was the singer, he was just kind of like uh, the, the, inner, the ultimate entertainer of the time, right? How do you think Frank Sinatra would be received in today's world and how do you think he would navigate today's entertainment industry? It, it, he would stay true to what he is, his own voice. You know, he, I'm sure he was, he was uh, dedicated to that. What people forget about, uh, you know, why he's, in my opinion, the greatest pop singer of all time, arguably. I mean, everybody yeah. would, uh, most people would agree to that. And when Frank Sinatra, what people forget about Frank Sinatra was what a great actor he was. He won the Academy Award. He never took an acting lesson. One night sitting at his home, I was sitting with, uh, uh, these are his house guests, Kirk Douglas, Gregory Peck, they had their wives there, all the women went to bed. It was Kirk Douglas, Gregory Peck, Robert Wagner, Clint Eastwood, Jack Lemmon. And they were talking about film. All uh, Us guys were all sitting around, it was like 2 o'clock in the morning. They were talking about film and, and all that. And I noticed they were showing great reverence to Frank, these learned actors. Hmm. And I'm curious, because in Hollywood, everybody wants to know who you studied with, you know. So I said to Frank, Frank, did you study acting? Before he could answer, Gregory Peck grabbed my arm real hard. He said, acting lessons would have ruined him. He was a diamond in the rough you didn't fool with. When Frank Sinatra, when you gave him a song, it became a script. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? He would immerse himself in that lyric and become that lonely guy in the bar whose woman loved him, left him, and he's never going to find love again. And you felt that. And also uh, the joy of songs. You know, come fly with me. You know, he, you know, that no one interpreted lyrics like that. One night having dinner with, Frank, Steve Lawrence, who is a great singer, Steve Lawrence said to Frank, you know you ruined it for all the rest of us. Because once they heard you sing it, mm -hmm. they knew how it's supposed to be sung. You felt that. He knew, he was, Charlton Heston said to watch Frank Sinatra sing a song is like watching a four-minute movie. Because, you know, he, he just immersed himself in lyric. He was a great actor, a brilliant actor. And he danced with Gene Kelly, you know, arguably the greatest career show business ever known. And I think today that he would approach the business and stay true to what he's about. And, and he would interpret the lyrics that way. You know, he's, I, I'll tell you something interesting. After Frank died, there was a, um, a, a Latin kid, a Mexican kid that had a, a hip hop show here in, in LA and I forget what, anyhow, but you know, he kept pestering my manager. He wanted me on the show and it was a hip hop show. And so I told my manager, I passed on, I said, I, you know, I don't know what they'd want me on the show for, but. I come out of stage at the Laugh Factory one night, and I'm walking outside, and this kid comes up to me and told me, he said, hey, I want you to come on my show. I'm asking your manager. I said, oh, I know. My manager told me, meanwhile, cars are going by blowing horn. People jumping out wanting pictures taken with the guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everything was very famous. <clears throat> but, um, I go to his show. I get up at 730 in the morning, hip-hop show, and it's playing hip-hop music, and he wanted to interview me in between songs. And he talked, I got Tom Dreesen, who toured with Frank Sinatra. If you have any questions with Frank Sinatra, and the switchboard lit up. And people start calling 17 years old, 19 years old, 18 years old, asking questions about Frank Sinatra. You know, can I swear on the show? I Here? Uh, yeah. Because right. yeah. oh, okay, I want to tell you exactly what the guy said. Yeah. When we went to commercial break, I said, I don't get it. I said, I don't get it. You know, hip-hop is so far from Frank Sinatra. I can't believe all these people calling. He said, oh, I said, all these young people calling. He said, oh, man, what you mean? He was a fucking outlaw, man. <laughs> and now, they saw him, maybe not his music, but they yeah. saw him, you know, I did it my way. Yeah. I did it my way. And that's, when you ask that question, what would he be doing? And this, he'd be doing it his way, you know. 
That's cool. I think that's a great insight. And and I do think that Frank Sinatra is one of those acts that have transcended time and space, right? It just okay. it just always works. I mean, when I when I'm having a dinner party, first thing I do is I go put classic Frank Sinatra hits on. I mean, it just it it ties the room together, right? It's it's something that everybody can connect and relate to. And I feel like even you know Michael Jackson's music doesn't really tie the room together like a Frank Sinatra. Well, kind of his, his music, when you yeah. think about it, Vito, his music is a soundtrack of your life. Yeah. People went steady to his music. When somebody loves you, it's no good. People got married to his music, you know, love and marriage. Love. People got divorced to his music. It's quarter to three. There's no one in the way. People got remarried to his music. Love is lovelier the second time around. You know, and, and it's, it's a soundtrack of your life. You know, um, when Frank Sinatra died, I went to the house. And, 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 of course, paid my respects and everything, and Barbara asked me to be a pallbearer. I was leaving there, and, and all the paparazzi and everybody were out in front. And I was driving down Sunset Boulevard, and there was a radio show on a talk show, and the woman called in, and she said, my husband fought in World War II and Korea, and he didn't cry at his father's funeral. She said, but he heard today that Frank Sinatra died. He went to his room, and he's in there sobbing. She said, I don't get it. But I got it, because, you know, Frank Sinatra, as long as he was alive, you know, a part of you was alive. Whether you're a housewife in Portland, Oregon, or you're a steel worker in, in Detroit or something, his music was the soundtrack of your life. So if Frank Sinatra died, then, you know, maybe we're going to die, too. <laughs> yeah, it is a little scary, right? So, and I think part of the reason Frank Sinatra had so much mass appeal, I mean, you hear about the behind-the-scenes stuff and the rumors and whatever, right, that they were... They were going around breaking people's legs, and the people in the crew were doing whatever they were doing, right? Yeah. But uh, living the full-on uh, old-school <laughs> Vegas life. But he presented himself in a way that was so mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. And what if Frank Sinatra had done what, like, the hip-hop artists of today do, where they just, you know, kind of do it their way without any, uh, you know, they don't care about the censorship or, or, like, cutting bad words out of their music. In fact, they like the more bad words and the more stuff that they can put into the music, the more negative the subject matter, they feel it's, for a while, it was getting a lot of attention. Now we're so desensitized to it, right? We've got Cardi B mm -hmm. and we've got yeah. these people just putting out stuff that's so aggressive and, and so offensive that it uh, doesn't even, like, phase us anymore. What if Frank had kind of gone that route? Do you think he would have had the success that he had? You know, he he would have, no, because yeah. you had to stay true to what yeah. you really are. Yeah. You know, you didn't, you know, and he truly was a pure singer. He sang from down here, yep. you know. Um, so yeah, he could have never done it. He, he said to me one time on, on, on his jet, we were flying back from a gig, and he said to me humbly, he said, Tommy, I don't care that my name lives on. I would like the music to live on, you know. And and it and is, and Michael Bublé say, you know, there are singers out there that, that young kids today can still understand the lyric, you know. A lot of, a lot of, by the way, I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for singing whatever you want to sing, saying whatever you want to say. That's what, Thousands of men and women died, so we have the First Amendment. Yeah, you know the, the, the we, you know, freedom of speech. So Frank would have honored that. He just, he didn't understand. Uh, you know, he used to say to me about swearing. I, I never swore in front of his audience, and, and when we were alone, you know, we were two guys. He was yeah. a kid from Hoboken. I'm a kid from Harvey, Illinois. You think that we didn't, you know, interchange, you know, street language and stuff like that. But one night I had like a, a guy, not heckling me, but giving me a lot of back talk. You know, at uh, I think it was at Caesar's Palace, and 
anyhow, but it was a fun guy, and I was going back and forth with him, and somehow I would give him a lot of rope. I would repeat what he said back to the microphone so that all the audience could hear it, and finally he said something about himself that it was obvious that I had made that point, but I said, no, shit, and it got a huge laugh. Later on, Frank said to me, Tommy, that was funny, but you don't need to swear to be funny. I said, no shit. <laughs> today, yeah. today, you know, you know. No, but kids are saying it to their parents nowadays. Oh, it's man. like it's crazy. Yeah. But you made a great point, right? You said a lot of men and women died for that First Amendment, right? And something that I've been noticing. I mean, you're deep in the comedy scene, and and I'm in production, and and I work with you know a lot of people, and communications is a huge thing. Do you feel that there's a war on comedy and a war on free speech overall in America today? The politically correct police. Yes, there is a war. There's a war on comedy, and, and comedians are the last bastion of freedom of speech. You know, uh, Lenny Bruce went to jail for it. You know, yeah. uh, you know that th- 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 again. Thousands of men and women died so that we have the First Amendment. You have the freedom of speech. You don't have to listen to us. You can walk out the door. You can ask for your money back. You can ch- turn the knob, but you can't stop people from. You can't yell cr- fire in a crowded theater, obviously. But you can't stop people from. Expressing, we live in a country where they don't jail you for freedom of speech, or they didn't used to. They're trying to make it happen now. You know, the politically correct police, and I would say, and who are you? Do you have an organization? Do you have a building that we, do you have a, a, a banquet hall that we can go to and we can debate you about freedom of speech? But we don't know who you are, and you keep telling us what we have to say. Now, we know who the, the Democrats are, the Republicans are, we know who independents are, we know who the, uh, the uh, Moose, the Kiwanis, the Elks, uh, we, the JCs, you know, we know who the Ku Klux Klan is, but we don't know who you are, and you keep telling us what we must say. You know, and here's the problem with that. When you start telling us what we must say, your next step is to tell us what we must think, and then say goodbye to the United States of America. We're now a communist nation. So I always end it by saying, you know, so here's what I have to say to you out there. Kiss my black ass. <laughs> so now, now well, hold yeah. on. I'm, I'm waiting for someone to tell me, you can't say that. Why can't I say that? I can say that. You know, you say, well, you don't have a black ass. Well, I think I have one. The guy next door, you know, he has, he has a penis like me. He thinks he can have a baby. I'm not mad at him. He thinks he can have a baby. Okay, you think you can have a baby. I think I got a black ass. <laughs> well, it's it's a good way to make the impact, but I'm I'm just saying, you know, it's it's interesting right now, right? And my question for you is, you know, 52 years of doing comedy, have you ever seen a climate like this before? No. No, I've never seen so much. Uh, uh, I mean, it's harder today to be a stand-up comedian. When I started out, it, it, was, it was very difficult to make it in stand-up comedy, but today, for a lot of reasons, it's harder to make it. Number one, there were no comedy clubs when I started out. You know, there were no comedy clubs. Tim Reed and I, as I keep pointing out, were America's first black and white comedy team. So we had to work clubs. So we, you had to have an act to get into the club. There weren't open mic nights, you know, things like that. So you had to develop an act almost at home and then take it into a club. Tim and I used to work the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, black-operated nightclubs, the 20 Grand in Detroit, the High Chaparral in Chicago, the Burning Spear in Chicago, the Cotton Club, the Dating Club Lounge, the Sugar Shack in Boston, the Club Harlem in Atlantic City. You know, these sort of clubs we worked. We worked white clubs too, the Playboy Circuits and stuff like that. But uh, uh, today, there's all of a sudden, overnight, there became 550 comedy clubs. You know, that meant... You know, there was three in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They're all over the country now. Mm-hmm. All the, there's far more comedians today than there were when I started out. So the competition is far greater, you mm-hmm. know. And, and, and then again, uh, it, it also, 
that you have these politically correct police telling these kids what they should say and what they shouldn't say. You know, there are some comedians who get away with it today because they grandfathered themselves in. They got this big following, and now you know what they're going to say. But there, there, there's some evil people out there that are going to sh- try to shut down the freedom of speech. And you can't do that. We shouldn't be able to do that with our Constitution. So there is a war on free speech. There's a war on comedy. How do we fight it, and how do we win? Keep fighting back. You know, you, you can't... You know, you you can't. Lenny Bruce went to jail because of his words. A lot of people didn't agree with his words, and maybe some of them I didn't agree with, but I did agree with. He had a right to say it. So you you know, take him to the max. You know, don't let them shut you down. You know. So one of the big things that <clears throat> is affecting the war on comedy and and free speech in general is the ability for these social media networks to deplatform anybody that they don't agree with on the basis of misinformation. Uh, I don't understand how parody could be perpetuated as misinformation, but it's just an easy excuse to be able to silence anybody they want. Was there anything like that when you were doing comedy? Obviously, there wasn't social media networks, but there was television, there was platforms. Were people canceled for their thoughts back then? And did did the powers that be, did the government or did people who didn't benefit from speech being free ever try to cancel you or, or shut down your 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 ability to tell a story. Well, you know, you know what mif- misinformation is? It's when you don't agree with me. You know, when when you're when my politics don't agree with your politics, we call that misinformation, you know, and which is bullshit, which is absolute bullshit. But there was the when Tim Reed and I started out, the we were America's first black and white comedy team. That you didn't see a black guy and a white guy walking down the street together, let alone on the stage together. So when we walked out in front of an all black audience or an all white audience, there was a hush came over the room. What is this about? You know, there were you know, there were some people that were against what we did. And the fourth time on stage, I put a lit cigarette out in Tim's face and then tried to beat the bejesus out of me. I boxed when I was in the Navy, but he outweighed me by 100 pounds. Big guy, you know. And, uh, and, and then um, at University of Illinois one night, a guy went out and packed a snowball and hit me right in the face with the snowball, you know, um, it, while we were on stage. It came out of nowhere, you know. For the most part, people liked what we did. There was always that one element, that small percentage of person that would... Uh, that was, didn't like to see a black guy and a white guy get along. If there was a black guy who hated white people, hated him with a passion, he wasn't mad at me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. If there was a white guy who hated black people with a passion, he wasn't mad at Tim. You know, he's mad at me for being with him. You know, um, um, it, 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 it was it was just that that reverse racism type of thing. You know, uh, but it was it was really in a minority. You know. So that's the interesting thing, though, is all these things that you described about people trying to you know shut down whatever you were doing. The difference was they had to confront you in person. Now we have what I call these invisible enemies on the internet, right? Yeah. And it just makes a like it makes small fringe groups seem much more amplified, right? So my question is, do you think that the government benefits by people being offended? If the government listens, if the government listens, yeah. Then, then you know, then they then they benefit by it, because if people are offended, you know, you know, if 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 I'm gonna, if I used to say about critics, you know, I I, I if tell tell me when people walk out of my show, if if they if they did they think that the price was right for the show, did they enjoy the show or something? Would you know, would they recommend my show to other people? But if there was criticism of my performance, if some guy said, I think he's a jerk, I didn't think he's funny, whatever, well, comedians get used to these kind of guys. But if there was a, a percentage of people 
that said, I don't like the way he does such, I would take heed to it then. I'd listen. You know, first of all, constructive criticism is always good for any comedian, you know. Um, and and if, you, if you've got an open mind, I want to hear your criticisms. But if you're just some jerk that's got a computer in the basement, and he's, his mom and dad are upstairs, and he's 45 years old, still living with mom and dad, but now he's got power. Mm-hmm. Now he can say, you know, Vito Glazer is a, is a <laughs> numbnuts. Vito yeah. Glazer is a jerk, you know. Oh, he, trust me, they love doing it. They love it. <laughs> yeah, they love it. Because that's their, they have a source of power. Yeah. So, But again, if a, if a certain criticism is consistent, then I'll listen. I really do want to listen. You know, and that's when you answer to your question, if the government listens. You know. So I'm of the accord that the government actually is perpetuating a lot of this anti-free speech, kind of uh, what I'll refer to as propaganda, right, or, or the opportunities for companies to censor fr- uh, free speech. I think that they get a lot of benefit from it because they get more control, right? And if they have control, then they more people relying on them. I don't think free speech and comedy is great for people who are in power, right? So that's just my, that's kind of my opinion. I wanted to hear your insight on it, but I want to kind of get off of uh, the serious stuff and talk, uh, you know, you've met a lot of amazing people in your career. Uh, indisputably, probably more than anybody that I've ever met, right? And if you had the opportunity to collaborate with one celebrity, dead or alive, who would you love to work with? You know, who would I love to work with? There was, <clears throat> there was never anything out there like working with Frank Sinatra. I knew you were going to say that. I mean, the way, yeah, I mean, you have to be realistic. You know, I, I love Smokey Robinson. He's one of my dearest friends in the whole world. I, every year I would run 26 miles for multiple sclerosis. My sister had MS. We called it 26 miles for Darlene. And I'd go back to Chicago, and I'd bring back 15, 20, 30 celebrities. They'd come back with me, you know, all these celebrities. And they would run a block with me, two blocks with me, the Chicago Bears and, and, and the, um, the Chicago Cubs. would come, and they'd run, you know, part of the a mile, two miles, whatever. Smokey's the only one who ran all 26 miles with me. He's one of my dearest friends in the whole world. He's a living legend, Smokey Robinson. Yes. He's written over 4,000 songs. Do you know that? I didn't as, know that. As you and I are talking right now, Smokey's getting a check from ASCAP. Wow. You know? But he was a delight. He's my dear friend. So touring with Smokey, that's great. You know, talking with Smokey, I, we play golf together. I, I love him like a brother, you know, and he as well loves me. But uh, some people like that... You know, there's national treasures. You know, Frank was a national treasure. He really was. And Smokey is a national treasure. Those kind of people um, that you admired before you were ever in this business, and then you get to meet them, you know. Um, I, 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 if, if it was past, you know, I would love to have, um, to be honest with this, if I, I think about this sometimes, I would love to have sat and talked with Abraham Lincoln. I'd really like to have picked his brain because he had a sense of humor. You know, he, he, there was funny things he did. I gave a talk where he gave a speech one time. They were honoring uh, Abraham Lincoln, and I gave a talk about his humor. You know, I would like to talk to him. But the other thing, too, is, and, and it sounds like a cliche, but I wish I, could have talk, I wish I could have talked to Jesus. Now, people say they talk to him all the time. But I found it fascinating that this man, at age 30 to 33, that's only, he only ministered three years, and the profound effect he had on the world today he only ministered three years. He never wandered 20 miles outside of his village. And yet, the profound effect he had on the world. Whether you believe in him or not as a son of God is, is a totally different thing. I would love to have sat down and, sit and talked to him. I once wrote a play called What Made Jesus Laugh. It was a thought I had, and I could never, I could never get it off the ground. But I, 
I everything I read, I never read that he laughed anywhere. And he hung out. He had his buddies. He hung around with his the disciples. They must have sat around and had some jokes or some laughs once in a while. So I wrote a fictional play called What Made Jesus Laugh, and it was a play about. I, I try to make this short. There was three acts in it, but the the and I also had another. Always I always wondered who was the first stand-up comedian, not the court jester, the first person who actually got up and did a monologue, you know. So I created this character named Thomas, of course. And he was he was sold wares with his father. They sold wares to the caravans. And Thomas was always telling funny stories. And his father would, like most fathers of comedians today, would say, where are you going to go with that? To get rid of that stupid stuff. You know, learn a trade. Anyway. Anyhow, so and at that time, Th- Thomas was, you know, one day Thomas was telling some funny stories to the caravans when his father, father wasn't there, to the, to the caravan uh, drivers and stuff, and uh, merchants. And so... He hears when he tells this funny story. He hears this big heavenly laugh, this baritone kind of laugh, and he turns around. There's this young guy named Jesus, and Jesus said, "You're very funny, Thomas. You know, you know, you should do that. You should do that more often." And and uh, he said, "Ah, my father wants me to go into his business." And Jesus said, "I'm about to go into my father's business too." You know, in the back one, Act Two, Thomas is now. He sneaks into a club one night, <clears throat> and. The, the owner tells him, get out of here. He wanted to get up and tell some funny stories. The owner, get out of here. And the owner goes in the kitchen. And the dancing girls leave the stage. And in the audience, the caravan guys are getting up and they're starting to leave. And Thomas jumps up on the stage because the owner's in the kitchen. And he starts telling funny stories. And the caravan guys say, hey, oh, that's, that's Jacob's son. Yeah, he's a good, this kid's funny. And they all sit down and order more drinks. Well, the owner comes out. And he wants to pull them off the stage. But he looks and sees they're ordering for a second time. Bingo, thus the first stand-up comedian gets his first job. Now he starts growing as a comedian. At the end of Act 2, he, and Jesus is now getting followings around the, around the area. So he, he sees Jesus at the end of Act 2, and Jesus says, you're doing real good, aren't you, Thomas? He said, I, he said, I hear you're drawing big crowds too, Jesus. He said, yeah, anyhow. Blah, blah. Now, in Act 3, Thomas has grown no much, so much as a comedian now. He's starting to do jokes about the Roman Empire and taxation, and he's getting warned. Knock this off, knock this off. Anyhow, he keeps going. Jesus is growing. At the end of Act 3, it's the end of the show. Thomas is stoned to death because he's, he's, you know, he went against the government. He's laying there dying, and Jesus is holding him in his arms. And Je- he says to Jesus, Jesus, I don't want to die. And Jesus says, Thomas, you'll never die. And as, as the curtain's starting to go down, you hear Milton Berle, Johnny Carson, Bob Hope, Jack Benny. You hear voices, George Burns. You hear these guys from their act. You know, that that's where it went on to, you know. And I never could get it off the ground. Well, <laughs> when asked the question, what celebrity would you like to work with? The correct answer was Vito Glazers. But that was a great answer anyway. <laughs> uh, well, I am working with Vito Glazers. I'm Glazer. just kidding around. I'm yeah. just kidding around. Uh, so, you know, you said something earlier, too, that I wanted to come back to about The Tonight Show. So you you used to be, you had to be on The Tonight Show to be legit, right? That was kind of the... That day, yeah. In that day. So <clears throat> what would you consider today's equivalent of that be for a comedian? Um, let's see. I would have to say Joe Rogan. Rogan? Yeah. Okay. Well, because yeah. he's got like 12 million followers. Yeah. I mean, then, no, he's got like 100 million. Well, he think, does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you yeah. might 12 million people might listen that day, but it goes out mm-hmm. to 100 million mm-hmm. people. He, 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 can, he can make, he could fill your houses, you know, if, if you went on his show and he liked you. And, and, and you, know, you could fill rooms after that, yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting because one of the most requested podcast bookings that my clients and even brands ask for is everybody asks for Rogan. Yeah. And that's a really good insight because 
now what's interesting is they charge a so now he's managed by Spotify so they charge a fortune you can I can actually get like a brand on Rogan it's around 250k in minimum ad budget and then you get like a 15 second read basically right and then he'll you can you can have that Rogan ad kind of play during different mm. podcasts and during his own podcast as well but what's interesting and what's cool about Rogan is he hasn't forgotten about his stand-up comedy roots mm. because if he likes your comedy and your act he will have you on yeah. and it doesn't cost anything and he just gives you a platform to yeah. to kind of share the story and I think that's really cool so for anybody listening who's trying to get into comedy Joe Rogan podcast that in your opinion is today's version of the Tonight's show, as far as credibility to a comic, yeah, not only today's version, it, it's you know multiplied by you know Johnny Carson had twenty eight million people watch the show, so one appearance on the Tonight Show and all of a sudden a whole world opened up. I was doing Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. I was the only white comedian ever to do Soul Train. That show opened up all those other shows for me, but Rogan's audiences, I mean, that feels clubs all around the country and 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 and, and, and also I, I listen to a show he's he's a great in, i love the way he interviews he listens he listens he listens and at some point he'll throw something in that's so profound you know uh joe rogan's the guy he, he's he's the, the you know have you done a show no i'm surprised i'm surprised <laughs> well, you're a great storyteller i know he's yeah i i i have high re regard for him i really have high respect yeah. for him but um i don't know why i don't do a show no we'll no. take a clip from this we'll shoot it his way uh, i Okay, so we got a few minutes left here, and one of the reasons we connected is because I saw your new motivational talk that you're doing over at the Comedy Store. You've done it at Comedy Chateau, I guess. Is this a new thing that you're doing? You're going to be kind of sharing this information, or did you just do it a couple times? Did you film it? You're trying to put it out there? No, I've done this for years. I, I, I do it for corporate America. Again, <clears throat> I'll repeat, I, I talk on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor, and I elaborate on those four points. But it's a passion of mine. I've read literally hundreds of books on the powers of the mind, from Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking, uh, Psycho-Cybernetics, Maxwell Maltz, um, um, uh, the, the Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy, and PMA, uh, Dale Carnegie books, Think and Grow Rich. I've read literally hundreds of books on the powers of the mind. And I'm very spiritual. I, I believe in a higher power. And I used all these principles and these sciences to, I'm, I'm done, I, all my dreams have come true. And I want to share that. I want to show others in my profession or in the, in the uh, corporate world. I, I do it for corporate America. I also do give my talk at universities or high schools. You know, I want to, I love motivating people. I love, you know, people trying to help them be all they can be in this short blink of an eye that we are on this planet, you know. Yeah, and no, and that's that's awesome. And the mind is the mind is so powerful. And I talk a lot about. Uh, I created this little thing called the gratitude gang, where you just have to be grateful because the more grateful you are for what you have, the more God gives you to be grateful for. Right? No question about it. But the mind can play a lot of tricks on you. And my wife, for example, <clears throat> very popular comedian, and she's generated millions of followers. She was the fastest growing comedian, uh, fastest growing female comedian of all time on TikTok. Uh, mm -hmm. During the pandemic, and she was selling BMWs and Rolls Royces before that. She she had no background in comedy. No, she's never taken a class or anything. Uh, she does these skits. She's terrified of going on stage. Most of these comedians, they're out here begging to you know get five minutes of time. She got a call from the comedy store when Chappelle was in town. They wanted to give her five minutes 
Huh. And she she passed. I couldn't believe it. I said, "I'll take it for you." And she, they're like, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, what would you say to somebody like that who's like so uh, immensely talented, but afraid to share their story on a platform like a live audience? Well, <clears throat> first of all, I I talk about this. They did a, a survey around the world. The insurance companies that were, you know for eight years of the ten fears of man. They went around the world. Uh, death. Oh, she's was a woman, but yeah. yeah. Oh, oh well, <laughs> man in the in the generic sense. I'm just kidding. But, uh, um, death was fourth, pain was second, getting up in front of an audience was the number one fear of mankind. You know, most people, when they have to get up in front of an audience, like if she was going on to the comedy store, all week long she'd be rehearsing what she's going to say, and she would envision herself not doing well. She's, what if, what, what if that doesn't work? What and her hands would start to sweat, her heart start to pound, because the subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between truth or fiction. It only knows what you program into it, the subconscious mind. Whatever the mind can see and believe, it will achieve, was written thousands of years ago. So whatever the mind can see and believe, it will achieve. I read the book, The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy, and it taught me how to program my subconscious mind. So whenever I would think of myself on stage when I was new and about what I was going to do, and I'd, I'd picture myself on stage, and if it wasn't working, I'd, my hands would sweat, my upside upon, I would go, cancel, cancel. And I would envision myself doing well. I would, whatever the mind can see and believe, it will achieve. There's another bit of philosophy. Act as if you are and you will be. I wanted to be a calm, relaxed comedian. I wanted to feel comfortable on stage. I wasn't when I was brand new, so I began to see it, feel it, and believe it. I would see myself doing well on that stage, and then I would start acting as if I was that character. No matter what was going on inside here, I'd act as if I was. So act as if you are, and you will be. So whenever you'd see yourself on that stage, see yourself doing well. Every time you get a negative thought about it, cancel, cancel, and see yourself. In fact, over-exaggerate. Not only are you doing well, when you finish, the crowd stands up, they rush to the stage, and they carry you outside out into the parking lot on their shoulders. Now you say, ridiculous, so is a negative thought. Don't give that negative thought any power. You know, you have the power to empower yourself. You really, the powers of the mind are incredible. You, you want to exercise? If I say to anybody, I want you to get physically fit. You say, I know how to do that. One word, exercise. I say, I want you to get mentally fit. Most people go, duh. No, same thing, one word, exercise. Exercise the mind the way you exercise the body. When I was sleeping in the abandoned car, hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard, I would jog some days, and I would jog to a cadence. Nothing can defeat me. Nothing can defeat me. Nothing. I was exercising my body, but I was exercising my mind. So it's a long story to a short, a short question, but tell the wife, don't see yourself failing. See yourself succeeding. See, see, see Vito saying to you, honey, you are terrific up there. You know, see, see it, feel it, and believe it, and then start acting like you are. You know? I always say dream it, believe it, achieve it, right? Yeah. That's kind of how we break it down. So anyways, this has been an amazing conversation. Where can people find you if they're interested in learning more? Right now, I'm sitting here with Vito Glazer. You know. That's right. Uh, you know, it, my, I, have, I have a website, tomdreesen.com, D-R-E-E-S-E-N, tomdreesen.com. And they can go there and, and find me, and you know, and, and of course, um, and and, and I'm, I, I'm going around the country. I do a one-man show now, a 90-minute show called "The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh." It's a 90-minute show about my life. He, he just happens to be at the end of my life, but it's all about uh, you know stand-up comedy. I start out with stand-up comedy, and uh, and I uh, eventually, after about 30 minutes, I segue to a bar where there's a bottle of Jack Daniels on the bar, and I tell a funny story, and all the lights go out. And I tell a funny story, the audience is laughing, lights go out, and on the screen, Frank is singing. It's quarter to three, 
there's no one in the place except you and me. Like, he's talking to me. I'm behind the bar. Like, I'm the bartender. When he goes off screen, a spotlight hits me, and now I'm in a bar, and I've come home, and I say to the audience, the first time I heard that voice, I was 10 years old, shining shoes in a bar in Harvey, Illinois, and he was on the jukebox. Then I take the audience from that little boy hearing Sinatra on the jukebox, you know, when he was 10 years old, and hearing Sinatra on the jukebox in Harvey, Illinois, to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California, and I take them on that journey. And it's all funny stories and poignant stories and, and it's sort of my life and everything. And in the end, I take them to the funeral. I actually have them in tears. And then I close with a very funny monologue. And I and laugh and I end with a toast, I say, with the Jack Daniels. I wish for all of you what Frank Sinatra wished for you. The very last song he ever sang is The Best Is Yet To Come. Good night, everybody. And Frank is singing, The Best Is Yet To Come as I'm leaving, as they're, you know, they're leaving the theater, you know. Well, that sounds like a great show, and I encourage everybody to check it out. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this has been another very special episode of Vito Glazer's After Dark, live from West Hollywood, California, with comedian and Frank Sinatra opening act Tom Driesen. You can check him out at TomDriesen.com. All the links will be in the info here, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Vito. It was fun. A lot of fun. Grateful to have you. Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for tuning in to our latest episode of Vito Glazer's After Dark, live from the Soho House in West Hollywood, California. And if you enjoyed tonight's episode and you'd like to know how you can support us, I invite you to check out one of our affiliate partners, Try Carrot. Carrot is an influencer black card. It's the first charge card and credit card that's built around underwriting your social media audience in order to approve you for your credit limit. It's really cool and really innovative financially. And on top of that, the Black Card gives you access to some amazing events, like they did a casino night in downtown LA. They do all kinds of influencer support groups and influencer opportunities. So if that's something that you're interested in, if you're an influencer or you're an entrepreneur that is active on social media and you would like to check out a really cool credit card or charge card, uh, I got approved for up to $15,000. You can apply for free at influencerblackcard.com. So again, if you enjoyed the episode tonight and you'd like to learn how you can support us without having to spend any money at all. You can apply for free. I invite you to check out influencerblackcard.com. And if you have any questions about it, feel free to DM me on Instagram at Vito Glazers, and I can tell you all about it.